This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Hurricane Laura. Did your town just finish getting back to normal after Hurricane Issa ES? Turn your community into a mess again with Hurricane Laura today. Welcome to episode 16 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today we're talking about fashion, what tween boys think Crocs are. As of 2016, the global garment industry was valued at $2.4 trillion, and behind this rapidly growing industry lies an army of consumers who have closets the size of an Ikea and will buy anything they can get their hands on to keep up with the latest fashion trends. I'm going to be doing a she and try on haul. Um, I bought about 25 items, more or less, and I spent around $197. I'm doing a fat she and try on haul. Like, this is big. Do you see this? I'm about to try on 30 million different pieces of clothing. Like, I've lost the plot. I feel like the heat has got to my head, and now I'm doing stupid things. Yeah, I feel like you're doing stupid things too. Not only are you trying on 30 million pieces of clothing, but you are making a YouTube video about you trying on 30 million pieces of clothing. Seriously, why have over 33,000 people watched this? That's more viewers than the videos of people taking off clothing. But in addition to creating a bunch of annoying YouTube celebrities, the fast fashion industry has had a massive impact on the environment. Even as fashion has gotten faster, cheaper, and more disposable, there's another cost to stocking up on fresh looks. Fashion is now one of the most polluting industries in the world. Around half a million tons of microfiber clothing is now being dumped into the ocean every year. Annually, the industry reportedly consumes 31 billion liters of oil and 79 billion cubic meters of water. 79 billion cubic meters. That's more than 31 million Olympic-sized swimming pools, or more than 537 billion Shaquille O'Neal's. But it's true. The fashion industry is responsible for 10% of global carbon emissions, 20% of global water pollution, and in the United States is outpacing the growth of every other major waste stream category. And that is largely due to the rise of fast fashion. So today, We're going to discuss what threats fast fashion poses to the environment, some of the other economic and human rights issues, and what we can do to improve. But first, what is fast fashion, and how did it come to be? Over the last two centuries, as the world has changed, our relationship to clothes has dramatically changed too. From an era where clothing was bespoke, or tailor-made for each individual, to the ready-to-wear era where pre-made clothing came in standardized sizing, and the current era of fast fashion. Exactly. Fashion used to refer to high-priced clothes with targeted markets, while garments entailed lower prices and mass markets. It's sort of like Dom Perignon versus wine in a box, or Paul Rudd versus Zach Galifianakis. Fashionable items used to be a lot more expensive to manufacture, meaning most people didn't have them. But improvements in technological efficiency in manufacturing have made it so there are essentially no more expensive fabrics, with the exception of silk, wool, fur, and Lady Gaga's meat dress. This gave way to fast fashion, where companies could create what look like fashionable clothes at a fraction of the price. Stores like H&M, Zara, and Forever 21 are perfect examples of fast fashion. 
cheap clothes that bring catwalk styles to the public in a matter of weeks. Zara employs a large team of fashion designers and churns out 10,000 new pieces each year, compared to a boutique luxury designer that might oversee production of just 50 to 100 pieces per year. With cheaper fabrics, companies have been able to move the entire design process in-house, do market research, outsource labor, and streamline costs. As a result, stores like Forever 21 can have an idea for a piece of clothing and within weeks fill their shelves with it, which has paved the way for some interesting t-shirt captions. Falling in love kills creativity. Yes, I'm an actual cat. Meow. Now please go away. My commute is better than yours. In Forever 21's defense, as bad as the pandemic has been, I can confidently say that my new commute from my bed to my desk is, without a doubt, better than yours. As great as it sounds to get fashionable clothes for affordable prices, that's not actually how fast fashion panned out. In 2014, people were buying 60% more clothing than in 2000, but only keeping the clothes for half as long. That increase in clothing consumption and turnover is in part due to fast fashion companies pushing new trends on customers every week that they want to be a part of, in part due to the clothes themselves being lower quality items since they're so cheap, and in part due to the geniuses at Forever 21 churning out daily t-shirt captions that are absolute bangers. In other words, instead of spending a ton of money on one expensive item, we spend a ton of money on several cheaper items that last us a comparable amount of time. In manufacturing, all this extra clothing creates a long list of problems. First off, there's carbon emissions, which, as we've explained in our traffic episode, among others, is the primary driver of climate change. Most clothing is now made of a material called polyester which is a petroleum-based fiber that requires large amounts of fossil fuels for manufacturing. According to Forbes, that number has now reached up to 70 million barrels a year. And the rise of fast fashion went hand in hand with a rise in polyester production. Now polyester manufacturing for clothing far outpaces other common materials like cotton or wool. Exactly. Because of fast fashion, Polyester is on the rise, and it requires a lot of energy to process. Since many countries that produce polyester still use coal, polyester has a massive carbon footprint, accounting for around 40% of the total fashion industry emissions in 2014. In fact, producing a polyester t-shirt leads to over triple the amount of CO2 emissions of a cotton t-shirt. And beyond that, polyester is actually a type of plastic, and plastic is made from the byproducts of fossil fuels like petroleum. In other words, we're burning fossil fuels to turn other fossil fuels into clothes. At this rate, we might as well just rub crude oil all over our bodies and call it a day. Although to make it fashionable, you'd have to paint on a caption like, don't cry over spilled crude oil, or stop calling me crude, I'm just refined, or sorry water, I can't come to the mixer. And yes, Forever 21, you can have those captions. But cotton isn't without fault either. Denim jeans, for example, are typically made from 100% cotton or a cotton blend. And in addition to being impossible to put on, take off, sit in, or walk in, jeans have some pretty profound environmental problems too. Jeans are responsible for the addition of 2.7 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent into the atmosphere every year. 
The environmental impact of the denim industry is equivalent to driving 6.5 billion miles or using 303 million gallons of gasoline or driving around the globe over 260,000 times. And while polyester's impacts are quite a bit worse than those numbers, it's sort of like saying Papa John's is quite a bit worse than Sabaro. Yes, that may be true, but Sabaro is still absolutely terrible. Sabaro pizza is basically the three-second rule of pizza. And by three-second rule, I mean the way a five-year-old follows the three-second rule, where they wait about ten seconds, crawl under the table, lick the floor to see if it's dirty or not, pick up their food, and pop back up with a mysterious piece of chewed gum in their mouth. Unlike polyester, cotton is a crop, so it does require fossil fuels to farm and process, but it also has other climate impacts unique to agriculture. Nitrogen fertilizers, for example, release nitrous oxide, a greenhouse gas with 300 times more warming power than CO2. And I could go on and on about the climate impacts of all different materials and how those impacts change depending on the energy portfolios of the producer countries or how far materials are transported. But instead, let's move to another impact, water. A pair of jeans and a t-shirt, then that'll be between 20 and 40,000 litres of water, depending where in the world those were made. That was Keith James from the Waste and Resources Action Program, and he's right. One basic outfit, jeans and a t-shirt, requires 20 to 40,000 litres of water. In a day, the average person drinks two litres of water. Though I would guess the average person actually drinks a sip of water, eight cups of coffee, a bottle of vodka, and the accidental bit of Listerine you swallow when you wash your mouth. But at two liters of water per day, it would take 10,000 days to drink the minimum amount of water that it takes to make your outfit. That's over 27 years. I'm 21, so that means I am still six years away from having drank the amount of water in my entire life that goes into producing one outfit. So why does this happen? Well, there's a few reasons, starting with the cotton crop. The Worldwide Fund for Nature estimates that 73% of the global cotton crop is on irrigated land. And while this isn't the case for all cotton farms, and it is improving, many irrigation systems spray more water than they actually need to. After that, huge amounts of water are wasted in the dyeing and bleaching process, where leftover dyes are often dumped into ditches, streams, or rivers, polluting the water. Here's Rokia Begum, who experienced these impacts firsthand after garment factories moved in near her family farm in Bangladesh. We used to drink water from this river and cook food with it. Now we can't even wash our hands here. We get rashes in our feet if we stand in these paddy fields. We can't eat fish from these waters. Don't you see there are no more fishermen around? And at that point, all you can say is, Yes, I'm an actual cat. Meow. Now please go away. If only it were that simple. And the list of environmental impacts goes on and on, from improper pesticide use on cotton farms, to poisonous chemicals and dyes like EDCs that can actually enter our bodies through our clothes and contribute to adverse health effects. And I know as frustrating as these obscene environmental impacts are, they also sound unavoidable. Unless you live in a nudist colony or a health club changing room, you need clothes. But our demand for clothes doesn't actually line up with the way in which the fast fashion industry functions. Fast fashion depends 
on absurdly cheap prices. And to actually maintain those prices, companies need to do a few things. First, they need to make an obscene amount of clothing, since they're advertising new trends so often. And with that comes some pretty ridiculous economic losses. The UN says the fashion industry loses $500 billion in value every year due to unsold, discarded clothing and the lack of recycling. Companies are making way more garments than they can sell, and that comes at a big price. Of course, it's commonplace for companies to make more than what they'll need, but since they're always changing to new styles, it's not like they're making extra of one or two things. They're making extra of countless new products every single week. And since the whole industry relies on items coming in and out of style for such short periods of time, there's no real opportunity for them to sell the unsold items. In fact, Forever 21 has actually gone bankrupt for that very reason. When they tried to expand internationally, they were investing less in their supply chain, which meant their clothes took a little longer to make it to market, and by the time they arrived, they were already out of style. And I know t-shirts with captions like, I don't need you, I have Wi-Fi, and Mermaid University seem timeless, and are, by the way, very real Forever 21 captions, they apparently have a really short window. As much as I think it's hilarious, Forever 21 went bankrupt, and I truly hope they changed their name to Temporary 21 before filing, it's really telling that a fast fashion company couldn't even invest in expansion because of how fast the supply chain needs to be for them to have a shot at making money. Speaking of the supply chain, to sell clothes for so cheap, companies need to be able to produce their clothes for even cheaper. And in a fair market, that's not possible. So instead, this happens. This woman and her daughter both work at Mondi Apparels. They each earn around $50 a month. The daughter told us she was just 12 years old and one of many children working at the factory. She gave the factory a fake birth certificate showing her age as 18, dodging the rules on child labor because her family needed the money. The woman told us that Mondi Apparels doesn't give workers a pay slip. Last month I worked 20 days, but they only paid me for 11, she said. That was an undercover report in Bangladesh from CBS News's Holly Williams. And through journalists like her, we've begun to see some of the absolutely horrifying labor practices in the fast fashion industry for ourselves. Workers are cramped in unsafe factories, not earning fair wages, and many of those workers are children. In northwestern China, many Uyghur Muslims are in concentration camps doing forced labor. Due to these working conditions, the textile industry also has one of the highest rates of occupational illness, leading to workers experiencing often fatal conditions, such as lung disease, physical injuries, reproductive impairments, and cancer. And knowing all of that, it's even more heartbreaking to see events like this. The scars of Rana Plaza buried deep in this country's psyche. The site where more than 1,100 people died is an empty, mournful place. Still, six weeks later, families search for their relatives. Bodies never recovered. 1,129 casualties. In a factory producing garments from over 20 brands, such as JCPenney, Primark, and Zara, 
who seven years later still have not offered compensation to victims and their families. It would be one thing if this were a one-time accident, and to be clear, it was an accident, but it is not a one-time occurrence. These tragedies happen way too often. With the need to produce clothes upon clothes for these cheap prices, it's no wonder factories aren't safe from a collapse. And since fast fashion companies typically contract and subcontract the manufacturing and don't actually oversee it themselves, they often emerge from these catastrophes saying, we didn't know, or that wasn't our fault. And maybe there was a point in time where they didn't know. But today, after all of these stories have spread across the world, it's nearly impossible for a company to truthfully say they didn't know. Of course, in economic terms, all of this creates a burden, from lack of education to healthcare costs to workers being stuck in slums to horrific events like Rana Plaza. One report found that addressing environmental and social problems created by the fashion industry would provide a $192 billion overall benefit to the global economy by 2030. But it's also an issue of ethics. Do we feel comfortable knowing that a child may have sewn our shirt? Do we feel comfortable knowing that those workers in Bangladesh, for example, are beholden to a minimum wage of $68 per month? Do we feel comfortable knowing that people are sacrificing their health and even their lives to make our clothes? After hearing all of this, I know it can start to feel hopeless. Either we sulk around in our Zara boots, or we strip naked and tape some leaves to our crotch. But luckily, there is a lot of room for improvement. We can, of course, make smart decisions by researching where our clothes come from and finding producer countries with stronger environmental and humanitarian standards like Europe, the US, and Canada, or picking fibers that require less water or don't use toxic chemicals, or choosing brands with transparent and ethical supply chains. And if you want to put in that work, that's fantastic. Just be sure you do actually put in the work, because some fast fashion companies really want you to know how much they care about the environment. Here's a commercial from Zara. Nature shows us the way. It talks, we must listen. It teaches, we must learn. It inspires us to make every drop count, to use the power of wind, of sunlight, of forests. Life inspires us to regard our raw materials, every stitch, every garment. Okay, you know it's a bit of a reach when they group together wind, sunlight, and forests. Don't get me wrong, I love forests, but that's like grouping together Beyonce, Rihanna, and a nectarine. Sure, they all came from nature too, but that doesn't mean they're the same category. But some of the biggest individual actions don't require research at all. All of these impacts stem from the fact that we've conditioned ourselves to believe we need new clothes every few weeks and we should expect cheap prices. In reality, quality clothing costs some money to make, but since you can wear it for a long time instead of watching it disintegrate in the wash after three cycles, it's an investment that pays off. That's one of the biggest steps we as individuals can take. Buy better clothes less often and wear them. Wear them a lot. Wear them until they're covered in rips and barbecue sauce stains. When we wear clothes for an extra nine months, we reduce our fashion-related carbon, water, and waste footprint by 20 to 30%. And generally, we dispose of our clothes long before we actually need to. We also need to be mindful of how we dispose of our clothes. 
While Zara tells us to embrace the power of forests, H&M ads are taking a different approach. Wear brown shoes after six. Wear a hat indoors. Wear a short skirt after 40. Wear a short skirt if you're a man. Be old. Be new. There are no rules in fashion but one. Recycle your clothes. H&M, you did get one thing right. Men should absolutely wear short skirts. I have no plans to buy H&M clothes, but if you come out with a men's short skirt, I will camp outside your store for a week so I can get first dibs at it. But unfortunately, recycling clothes doesn't have the positive impact H&M would lead you to believe. Here's Elizabeth Klein, author of the book Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion. A lot of our clothes are made out of blended fibers, so um, you know maybe this is acrylic and wool and cotton mixed together. Maybe my tights are cotton and elastane. That makes it very difficult to recycle. The other challenge is that when you recycle cotton and wool, it um, diminishes the quality of that material. So it weakens the cotton and wool strand and gives you a lesser product. In other words, recycling clothing doesn't seem viable yet. It's expensive, it's time consuming, and even if 40% of fibers were recycled, emissions would only be reduced three to 6%. A more commonly discussed disposal method is donating clothes, but unfortunately, that's not perfect either. When we drop clothes at charities, only 10 to 20% actually get resold there, and the rest go to low and middle income countries overseas. And we might like to think that they want those clothes, but that's actually far from true. At this market in Uganda's capital Kampala, people take their pick from a pile. It's among the more than 150 million US dollars worth of used clothes imported in East Africa every year, mostly from the US and the UK. Imports that Uganda, Rwanda and Tanzania have agreed to ban to support their own textile industries. It's true. All of those countries have textile industries of their own. And by us sending clothes there quite literally by the ton, it prevents the growth of local clothing businesses. And not only does this create an economic issue, it creates an environmental issue. The amount of clothing these countries receive is way more than they need. As a result, they often burn the clothes, which not only puts a bunch of junk into the atmosphere, but it means all the emissions from transporting tons and tons of clothing across the ocean were for nothing. That's not to say donating clothes is entirely bad, but be sure you're donating to someone who can actually use them. Swapping with family and friends, or finding someone who actually will wear the clothes, or even buying secondhand clothes yourself can actually contribute to the solution rather than creating additional problems. While individual steps do genuinely make a difference here, the biggest opportunities to improve come at the policy level. And luckily, there's a lot of work being done. The United Nations, for example, has an Alliance for Sustainable Fashion, where several different agencies work together to improve the global fashion industry's environmental and humanitarian impacts through a sustainable development lens, and in doing so, show up at UN conferences with some pretty chic outfits. So we have Langachen on the jacket, which is eco-down organic cottons, waterproof. It's 100% Tencel Luxe, which is a premium version of um, Lyocell, and it's 
fantastically easy to wear. Yes. I didn't know the thing missing from UN conferences was a catwalk, but now that I do, I feel so much better. Beyond global governance, there's a lot countries can do domestically to hold companies accountable. For example, policymakers could demand that companies make their supply chains more transparent. This would first require companies to actually learn about the practices of their contractors and subcontractors, and second, allow consumers to know what we're purchasing. And while that wouldn't force companies to take action, it would allow consumers to make informed decisions when they shop. There's also plenty of ways to improve the supply chain itself. First off, pay your workers, don't employ children, maybe keep a few fire extinguishers. But beyond the obvious, there are some interesting innovations happening around the world. In southern England, for example, one company has managed to start producing clothing through artificial intelligence and robots. Others have found ways to make clothing out of crop waste. Here's crop a the winner of the 2018 Global Change Award. crop a changes this by turning the waste into biofiber. This low-cost, closed-loop technology also brings additional income to the farmer. The biofiber can then be turned into fabrics and, voila, a new sustainable material ready to take the fashion world by storm. All right, I stand corrected. Apparently you can harness the power of the forests. There's also plenty of improvements that can be made with some of our current fabrics, from conserving water and more safely managing pests on cotton farms to not dumping dye into rivers. I know that all of this might be really weird to hear from me, because if you know me, you would know I hate shopping. I stopped growing in eighth grade and have maybe bought three pieces of new clothing since. And while some of the individual steps might sound easy to me, I totally understand that for those of you who love shopping and keeping up with fashion trends, they might sound really hard. Even knowing how the fast fashion industry came to be, the culture of buying new clothes has become so mainstream that it's almost inappropriate not to. But as someone who wears old t-shirts 95% of the time, I promise you that if you find some clothes you like, you can absolutely get away with having fewer outfits for longer. And if you do, you'll save water, mitigate climate change, and help improve a global economic and humanitarian crisis. And if someone makes a comment that your outfit's out of style or you wore it last week, all you have to do is say, Yes, I'm an actual cat. Meow. Now please go away. Did you watch Katrina, Sandy, Harvey, Maria, and Issa ES and wish you could hit every single one of those areas at once? If so, Hurricane Laura is for you. After sweeping through the Caribbean and into the Gulf to hit Texas and Louisiana, Laura is planning a trip to hit the Northeast too. Hope she brought some podcasts for that road trip. Hurricane Laura, the last hurricane before the meteorologists need to buy a book of baby names. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Jennifer Lazat, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and the author of From Goodwill to Grunge, A History of Secondhand Styles and Alternative Economies. Dr. Lazat, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. So as I was learning about fast fashion, it was really striking to me to see how one piece of clothing had such a massive impact on the environment for climate, for water, for all different things. And seeing just how big that impact is, I was wondering, why is this not an issue that we're talking about at the level that we talk about, say, electricity or transportation? So you've got interested lobbying groups, number one. 
but also you've got entrenched consumer mentality that just isn't willing to compromise on that front, right? Or that sees itself as compromising, but doesn't realize how expansive our sartorial vocabulary has become, right? How many items of clothing we are expected to own and how quickly we are expected to update, to rotate that self-presentation in order to seem relevant, to seem germane. It's not even just seeming cool, it's just seeming appropriate. The bar has risen so much. Yeah, that's really interesting how you talk about this cultural shift where now it's kind of ingrained in us that we need to have a new outfit every day, we can't repeat anything. Why has that culture become so prevalent and is there a way that that could be changed in the future? about the late 19th century, the white American middle class predominantly, but this extends to any assimilating groups that are eager to get the benefits from the white middle class in America, adopted, accepted the germ theory, right? And extreme habits of cleanliness became middle class practices in the home. So whereas those of the middling class in 1860 would have reused clothing items repeatedly, right? So if the patriarch of the family, his shirt wore out, you'd make it into a pinafore for his daughter. If that wore out, you might make it into a baby's garment or diapers. If that wore out, you might stuff furniture with it. So various avenues of reuse. After the germ theory, there was a lot of encouragement to say, no, this is not acceptable. Your home will be dirty. Some of it based on fact, because clothing does maintain germs to a greater degree, but again, this is killed by sanitizing. At the same time that this is happening though, you have garage sales, flea markets, thrift stores. So thrift stores were first in the 19th century. And a lot of them leveraged this idea that Americans were starting to get that this is morally good to donate my clothing, right? Whereas before that, Americans had this principle of thrift. I'm going to reuse that. This is good. But now they're like, well, cleanliness next to godliness, right? And I'm doing the good thing for my family. Oh, and now Salvation Army and Goodwill say, I'm helping the poor. I'm helping immigrants and so forth. And now because manufacturing has upticked, I can afford new clothing all the time. So whichever one of those motives are predominant, it's hard to tell historically, right? So there were various levels of inducement to get people to accept and then consider absolutely imperative greater number of clothing. You mentioned how people donate their clothes, which I know creates a lot of problems too. It'll go over to countries who don't actually need them. They'll end up burning the clothes sometimes. And I'm wondering how is our practice of donating clothes impacting the global economy and why did it end up creating all these problems? Yes, this assumption that donating your clothes to secondhand venues of various kinds is somehow an environmental and social good, if it ever had historical traction, has been out of date since at least post-World War II, when this process began. Tons of clothing that was donated had outpaced domestic need, right? So then you send it to, you know, developing countries. Africa is an enormous receptacle of American clothing that is deemed not saleable even in, at Goodwill or secondhand venues in the United States. So the real draft, right? And arguably this has social, cultural implications that go far beyond the economic and environmental ones, but they include mental ones too. So if you fast forward to contemporary times, I think Environmental Health had an article a couple of years that gave some statistics 
about the percentage of clothing of Americans that ends up in solid waste landfills. And it's about 85% of what Americans buy, according to this article, about 3.8 billion pounds a year that end up in solid waste landfills. And that's not counting the amount that's burned or otherwise disposed of. So that's an average of about 80 pounds per American per year. And so that's an exorbitant amount of clothing enabled by fast fashion, clothing that is assumed to be disposable, that will literally fall apart in three washes because you're going to replace it. And so it's not even viable really for reconsumption for those cycles of reuse. When we talk about decarbonization and you look at cities or countries or institutions looking to go carbon neutral, I don't think I've seen any talk about clothing-related emissions. The same thing comes up with agriculture emissions. And it seems like this could be one of those issues where since the supply chain is so massive and international, no one wants to take the blame for the emissions coming from that particular source. So do you see this as a potential concern for actually mitigating those carbon emissions associated with fashion in the future? It's incredibly hard. To do because whatever standards you can establish domestically, you will have companies, you will have entrepreneurs who will be able to overcome those because there's so much not just contracting out of production but subcontracting. You see a diffusion of responsibility. So, even if consumers, even if there was a mass consumer movement to say, I'm not going to buy from companies that truck in this, it is almost impossible to trace that. So, in 2013, when the Rana Plaza collapsed in Bangladesh, right. There was this sort of muckraking effort to kind of expose the companies that had been using this facility, which were numerous and many of them were popular American brands and companies. They all said, we didn't know because we'd subcontracted it out. We told X company to produce them. They said they could do it for this amount. This was the cheapest. We didn't know the conditions under which they were subcontracting sometimes two or three times, right? So the lines are so complex and globalized that it's very much a trickle-down process to get to the lowest common denominator, the least paid workers in the worst conditions, often with the least environmental oversight, that it's entirely untransparent. Now today you have somewhat of a movement for companies to engage in complex transparency, like Everlane, for example. There are various clothing companies that will list this is the factory where this is made. This is what workers get paid. These are our practices. We have one stream of distribution and acquisition for our products, and we're going to tell you what it is. This is why your product costs this much. This is what we're paying the workers. This is the conditions under which they're produced. But that's still a minuscule part of the fashion. We hear a lot about sustainable fashion, and I know Culturally, I see this mindset where sustainable fashion is seen as not as good or not as fashionable as other types of clothing, which I personally am not an expert on. But how does our culture evolve to kind of accept sustainable fashion? What can people do to become more sustainable? And what does that actually look like? I think key to that is the meaning and implications of the word fashion and fashionability. Fashion has always implied change. And as fashion cycles have accelerated, it's implied more rapid change. I firmly believe that if you want to be sustainable by fashion, you're going to need to rely on fewer garments of clothing. Some people have said, well, I love to buy secondhand because I'm not participating in this cycle, right? I can buy many more articles of clothing. Somebody's just thrown that away. 
but you're still supporting that, right? By participating at that level of the cycle, you can say that your inducement to the production of new clothing is less, but you're still participating in that production, in that economy, in that cycle, because the clothing that is being donated in order to make room for more rapid fashion cycles is ending up in your hands. There's a market for that too, right? So the market streams are also complex post-consumer as well as in development and distribution. Is there a way that clothing can still be cheap without people buying too much of it? Or do people have to accept that it might become a little more expensive? There is not a way that you can get the quality of sustainable clothing that you would need to wear an item even 20 times in a year for multiple years. There's not a way that you can guarantee that your clothing has not been produced under serious breach of what Americans or other countries consider acceptable emission standards. There's not a way that you can buy clothing that subscribes to equitable labor laws and wages and still keep Forever 21 prices. I mean, that's out of date because they're going, but <laughs> there's not a way that you can get $10 t-shirts and keep all of those veins alive. So yes, sustainable clothing will be more expensive because part of it is premised on the fact that, okay, I am going to commit to having fewer purchases of clothing a year. This means I'm going to have to wear those articles of clothing more often. How many times have you bought something at Old Navy for $10 and then washed it twice and it starts to fall apart in the seams and you say, well, it was only $10, right? That's what they rely on, that it's expected this is gonna fall apart. The expectation is a comparable article of clothing should be able to last many more washes through much more use. So to me, the use value is roughly equivalent. But that takes a lot of mental mechanization that we're not trained to do. We're trained to be like, look, this is cheap. You like it. It's pretty. It's fashionable. Get it now. Right? I don't want to think about it any more than that. It takes a lot of effort to make sustainable decisions about clothing because that's pushed back on, right? Because for decades, the marketing of clothing has relied on this idea of planned obsolescence, the idea of this is going to go out of fashion. You're not going to want to be seen in it anyway. A lot of sustainable clothing that is marketed as such also takes a minimalist approach, right? So depending on your fashionable sensibility, a lot of those clothes are not marketing clothes that, well, this is the cut style colors print that's in fashion this season. We're going to go with what is going to be predictably classic or in fashion for a while, right? So unless that's your aesthetic, you might also have trouble finding something that suits you. Now, I think more and more that's expanding, that slow fashion, as it's sometimes called, or sustainable fashion, or transparent fashion, that industry is growing to include more aesthetic variation. If we've been at all responsive to the marketing of fashion, we've been trained to get tired of how something looks quicker than those articles of clothing would collapse, right? So you'd be like, oh, man, I've had this shirt for five years. Instead of being like, oh, I love this shirt, we're kind of trained to see it as somehow gross or less cool or just not acceptable by common standards of fashionability. So it takes kind of retraining. Dr. Lazat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This wraps up episode 16 of The Sweaty Penguin. Thank you again to Jennifer Lazat for her insights. Stay tuned for next week's episode. We'll see you there.
Today's episode was written by Olivia Amate and Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Shannon Damiano, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.